Hey, church family, before we step into this, to the word this morning and worship the Lord through that, I do want to be the mouthpiece for our staff, Lynn, Connie, Brandon, and myself, and just say thank you to you. Um, we tried to express that in the bulletin in a little paragraph, but the month of October, uh, I don't know if it's Hallmark or whoever came up with this, but it's supposed to be Pastor Appreciation Month. And uh, it's really a, it's a special thing for us, but we've changed it from pastor appreciation to staff appreciation because there's just a whole lot that happens with Connie and Lynn that is beyond uh, either Brandon or myself. And so we just kind of enlarge that circle. And you've been sending notes and cards and, and giving us uh, gifts. Uh, usually it's a gift certificate to a restaurant for a date night or whatever. And, and so that's really, really been great. I, I get to go to La Casita. Uh, again, uh, which I never go there, right? right? <laughs> so thank you on behalf of our entire staff for turning October into really a special time for us. All right, with that thought in mind, let's take our Bibles and let's head for the book of 1 Corinthians and find chapter 15. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It comes right after the book of Romans and right before... Hey, 2 Corinthians, there was one sharp person right over here. Just one, though, but one. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you need a Bible, church family, uh, raise your hand. Just, just let that hand get up there, and we'll, we'll try to give you a Bible to work with. There's a note page in your bulletin. If you're not familiar with uh, that being there, that will help us along the way also. And we are, we are in week five of a six-week celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Great Reformation. No, that's not right. That's not right. Strike that. We are in week five of a six-week celebration of the true gospel that was rescued 500 years ago from more than a 1,000 years of darkness and confusion at the hands of religion, at the hands of the Latin church. Perhaps you would know your history well enough, your European history in particular, that on October the 31st, 1517, in Europe, in Germany, a Catholic monk nailed his 95 challenges to the Latin church, and he nailed them to the Wittenberg church door. And in that moment, the Reformation, a reformation of the spiritual landscape of the Western world, actually began. That great reformation ended up changing not only the world, but church family. It changed you and me. It changed us. A six-week celebration of the true gospel. That's what we're doing. We're celebrating that as we think about what happened 500 years ago. It's a much more accurate description of our series called Sola a celebration of the true gospel. And what is the true gospel? What is it? Well, let's put it up on the wall there for us, on the monitor. Salvation truth, the true gospel, is salvation truth that comes from Holy Scripture alone concerning who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that truth is appropriated into my life by grace through faith in Jesus, resulting in forgiveness of sin, and eternal life with God. The true gospel. Do you have the true gospel here today? Do you? Yeah? 
The way to be saved, the way to have an eternal relationship with the living God, that is the true gospel, which has only ever been for us available. It's only ever been for us accessible and readable and understandable and embraceable. But it was not available. It was not within reach of the average person living in Europe in 1500. And we can't even conceive of such a thing, such a world where the true gospel was not readily available. That's not part of our experience. But there was a time when that is how it was. For the average person living in 1500, life was hard. I mean, it was very hard. Obviously hard in so many of the ways that we today take for granted. None of the creature comforts like running water or hot water or safe to drink water or electricity or lights, prompt medical treatment, vaccines, huge grocery stores full of food, microwaves, no cell phones. How did people live without cell phones? Our teenagers ask. Life was hard. It was really hard. In fact, life expectancy of a person in 1500 was 45 years. One in three children died before the age of five. There were funerals all the time. Life was hard. But life wasn't just hard in those physical kinds of ways, church family. It was hard spiritually. If we could travel back in time, 500 years to Europe, we would immediately notice that in every town or village there was only one church. There was only one spiritual voice. And even today, if you look at a picture of a little town in Europe, there will be the town with the homes and the shops, and then in the very center of the town will be this humongous cathedral, right? If you've ever traveled in Europe, you know that this is how it, how it looks. And these cathedrals, they date back. Five, six, seven, eight hundred years. And that's because the Latin church, the, the Roman Catholic church, was at the center of everyone's life. It was the only church. And in this church, there was a priest. And he represented God to you. He and the church hierarchy of bishops and cardinals right on up to the Pope in Rome. Nobody had a Bible Every, very few people could read. The printing press was just coming into, into play in some way, but, but uh, the Bible was in Latin, so even if you could read, you lived in Germany, you couldn't read the Bible. You, you didn't have one. It never occurred to you to say, I think I'll buy a Bible and I'll just see if what I'm being told by the priest and by the church is true. It never occurred to you. To think like that. And so whatever the priest said and whatever the church said, that is what you believed and that's what you thought was the truth. You had no reason not to think that way because that's what people had been doing for 1,200 years prior to your time. You watched the priest perform the mass. You watched him take communion because you were not allowed to take communion as a common person. The priest was your spiritual father. He was your go-between between you and God. He wore clothing that set him apart and let you know that he was righteous and, well, 
You, not so much. He represented the voice of God to you. You confessed your sins to Him. And He told you how to be absolved of your sins. What form your penance would take and and what things you would have to do in order to secure your forgiveness with God. He was the source of truth. Well, hundreds and hundreds of years of this kind of carte blanche spiritual control inevitably led to a terrible distortion of the true gospel by the year 1500. What was again was the true gospel? Who Jesus is? What he's done? Appropriated into my life by grace through faith. That true gospel in 1500 was terribly distorted. It had become an untrue gospel, a false gospel of Jesus plus things that I must do in order to be saved and granted eternal life God with, in heaven with God. My good works, my avoidance of bad things, just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in for good measure, that's how I'm saved. Jesus plus things that I do. That was the truth in 1500. It was the only truth. It was an untrue gospel. And nobody questioned this. The church fathers had spoken and their voice was equal in authority to the Bible. At least that's what everybody had been taught. And so you didn't question how to be saved. It was Jesus plus the stuff that you do. And it gets even worse, church family. The Latin church leaders in 1500, short on money to build those giant cathedrals and increase their land holdings and power base, they hit on a brilliantly deceptive scheme. We can sell the forgiveness of God, they said. The commoners were told that they could, for a sum of money that they would pay to the church, they could purchase an indulgence. Remember that word? They could purchase an indulgence that granted them forgiveness of a sin. They'd be given a piece of paper which said, this forgives a sin. Either a sin in your life, a sin in a loved one's life, and even a sin in the life of someone who's already died. You could buy forgiveness. Such was the spiritual darkness that lay over the land in Europe in 1500. Well, some Catholic priests, and one in particular named Martin Luther, who could read the Latin Bible, began to discover that much of what the church was doing and much of what it was teaching was not in the Bible. And in particular, what he discovered was that the the true gospel had been lost, buried under a mountain of church tradition and ritual and distorted manipulation and even brazen greed. And these brave priests who knew that they could be killed for challenging the church called the Latin church out and and called for reform, for a reformation, for a return to what the Bible actually says about the gospel and how a sinner can be saved. In time, their challenges gained form and shape and structure and came to be known as the five solas of the true gospel. Sola. In the Latin, it's the Latin word for what, church? Alone. You're, you've been listening. It's great. 
Yes. The reformers declared that, that neither the church nor its human leaders had any right, any authority to add to the gospel once God had given it in Scripture. It stands alone, sola. And so the five solas are the five absolutely essential, non-negotiable truths about biblical salvation doctrine that the Reformation rescued from religion 500 years ago. Now, over the course of these weeks, we have been familiarizing ourselves with the five solas, and, and I've never asked you up to this point, church family, to read the Latin version, just asked you to to give back the, the English rendering, but I'm going to go bold this morning. I'm going to ask you if we can just read right off of the screen all five of these solas, the Latin and then the English. Are you, are you daring enough to do that with me? All right, let's do that. So the five solas, what are they? Sola Scriptura, on Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Sola Fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. Right on, you did great. The five solas, the five alones of the true gospel, true salvation. Without the Reformation, without the challenges to the Latin church that were nailed to that cathedral door by Martin Luther on October the 31st, 1517, this coming Tuesday will be the 500th anniversary to the day. Without that, the true gospel might still remain buried and you and I would be spiritually dead and we wouldn't even know it. That's how big a deal this is. And so each week we are affirming one of these great Reformation solas, affirming them, thanking God for them, and thanking God for giving them back to us. So we've affirmed up to this point, sola scriptura, our source for spiritual truth in this life is scripture alone. It's not the church plus scripture, just the Bible, right? Idlewild Bible Church, right? We've affirmed sola gratia. No sinner merits God's forgiveness. No sinner earns God's approval and acceptance by things that they do. God's loving Grace is lavished on us, isn't it? Not because we deserve it. We're sinners. But he wants to love on us and he lavishes his grace on us. He gives us salvation as a gift. If I earned it, it's not grace. It's payment. And God's salvation is never payment. It's a gift. And we say amen to that. We've affirmed sola fide, faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it plainly, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not on, is, a, is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that nobody can boast. God asks us only to believe what he has done for us through his son Jesus, to trust him for our salvation. And we say, Amen. Yeah. Which brings us today, church family, to solus. Christus, in Christ alone. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus alone saves. Amen? Yeah. Now your Bible is open to 1 Corinthians 15. Under the leading and the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes to a, a first century church family that's not unlike our church family. They spoke Greek. 
But in many respects, we're just like them. Let's hear what Paul has to say to them, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the what? The gospel, the true gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you were just going through the motions and you never really embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. For I delivered to you as of what? First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And, of course, he did that on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And so we say, Holy Spirit, here we are, eight verses. Bring your truth within easy reach of us this morning as we take a look at Solus Christus. Now, If I could just for a moment ask you to think back to your days when you were in school. Now, if you're still in school, all the better for you. But uh, for some of us, thinking back to our days in school means we've got to go way back, right? Way back, farther than we'll ever want to admit, right? Remember those days. And remember back to those days toward the end of a long semester in school. You're getting close to information overload as midterms or finals are, are approaching. Every class, the, the teachers are giving more assignments. There's more papers to write, more pages to read. And your brain is getting really full as you approach the end of the semester. And, and as the teacher lectures, there is a question that formed in your mind. And not just in your mind, but in the minds of all your classmates as well. Teachers don't like this question. But it probably is one of the most frequently asked of them, especially at the end of the semester. Do you remember what the question was that you would ask your teacher? Is this going to be on the final? Right? Do you remember that? Is this going to be on the final exam? You can practically hear the question echoing down the hallway of your memory right now. And, 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 and you, ask, you, you can hear yourself asking, do we really have to know all of this material? Is it all going to be on the final? And every once in a while, if your teacher was really cool, they would tell you what was going to be on the final, what you really needed to know. What was really important, they would tell you. And they, then they'd tell you, this is kind of more extra credit, but you've got to know this stuff. When Paul's letter came to the Christians in Corinth, someone had to read the letter out loud. There weren't printing presses back then, so not everybody's going to have a copy of this letter of 1 Corinthians. Nine out of ten people couldn't read anyway. And so the letter would be read out loud, line by line. And 1 Corinthians is a pretty long letter. I mean, it's, it's 16 chapters long. And so by the time the reader in church, got to chapter 15, man, there's been 14 chapters already. 
And what happens when someone's been reading to you for quite a long time? What happens? Well, you begin, yes, you could fall asleep. You could fall asleep. But your audience's attention begins to wane. How many of you, let me just ask this question, how many of you ever find your thoughts wandering while I'm talking to you? Right? Can, can I see the hands of everybody for whom a little bit of wandering thought happens? Get the hand up there. Way up there. You got it up there? Keep it up there. Keep it up there. Right now. Keep it up there. All right. I got it. You are in trouble now. <laughs> now how many of you just raised your hand because you were already wandering and you saw everybody raise their hand, but you have no idea why, so you rose your Yeah? Case in point. I just proved what happened in Corinth as well. And Paul knows this. And so he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the true gospel. I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved present tense for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received Paul in effect says what I'm about to say you really want to listen to this because it's going to be on the final wake up refocus concentrate sharpen your pencil don't miss this this is going to be at the very top of the list of the things that you need to know this is of first importance it's going to be on the final exam of your life that's what paul says what the holy spirit does in this passage in these opening verses of 15 and i know you already see this he he gives us the absolute bottom line summary of the christian faith The bottom line summary of the true gospel. This is it. Everything else in in many respects is is extra credit. But you got to know this. It's all important. It's of first importance. When you and I stand before God one day, and the Bible says we will all do that, right? Not one of us is going to escape that thought. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for all men to die once and then comes judgment we're going to stand before god when you and i stand before god one day we'll be handed figuratively speaking of course the final exam and it will have only one question on it the question will be what do you believe about my son jesus christ that's the question just one God prepares the exam himself and he's going to ask as we stand before him, what do you believe about my son Jesus? God, by his spirit here in 1 Corinthians 15, gives us the only right answers to this question. Here's what we really need to know and believe. And so he says in verse 3, what I received, I faithfully delivered to you. This did not start with me. I didn't cook this stuff up in my head. What I'm about to tell you is, is like a torch that's been passed down from one generation to another. God first gave this information to the prophets. 
who wrote down in the Old Testament Scriptures the promise of a Savior. And what was delivered to them, I have received. In fact, Jesus even confirmed it to me on the road to Damascus. And he says, I now pass it on to you, the true gospel. And this is of first importance. Two foundational, non-negotiable truths. So what is truth number one? Well, it's right there on the middle of your note page. Let's read it aloud together. Can we do that, church? Let's read this, the first truth aloud together. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried. Do you believe it? Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. That's truth number one that we've got to know. Now, why did Jesus have to die? That would be the logical question to ask on the backside of these verses. Christ died for what? Our sins. Church family, while our secular culture might ardently debate the answer to this question, in the Bible, in the Word of God, there is no debate. There is only one answer for why Jesus died on the cross, and that was... For our sins, your sins, my sins. Not because Jesus sinned. He's holy God. He's sinlessly perfect in flesh appearing, Scripture says. Tempted in every way just like we are, Hebrews 4.15 says, but without sin. Jesus died because every one of us at some point has said, and truthfully beyond number, Uh, times beyond counting, we have said, I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. That's another word. That's another way to express the word sin, isn't it? I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. Now, this word in verse 3 for sin, it's, it's actually an archery term that comes out of the first century. It means to miss the target. It means to miss the bullseye. God defines the target. God defines the bullseye. In his sovereignty, he sets the standard for what he wants from us. And we, because there is a sin nature that resides within us, each of us says, no, I don't want to do that. And we fire our arrow, and it misses the target. And that's what? That's sin. And we have all what? Not a single one of us in this room is an exception to that statement. Sin, in fact, so effectively and so thoroughly messed up our chance to have a personal relationship with holy God who made us that unless he sends his sinless son to die in our place to pay sin's penalty for us, we are destined to spend eternity apart from God. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Jesus was the only one who could stand in our place and eternal praise be to him that he was willing to stand in our place. Now, I'm going to ask you to exercise your imagination once again. Imagine with me for a moment that we're all standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. You ever been to the Grand Canyon? You ever stood on the south rim? If you have, that is an amazing place, an amazing moment. Only what we're going to do with our imagination is we're going to pretend that it's not the Grand Canyon, it's Rebellion Canyon. Okay, we're going to rename it. 
Rebellion Canyon. And we're not at Mather Point, which is what this is right here. This is not Mather Point for us this morning. This is Sinner's Lookout. Okay? All right? So, so here we are, our whole church family standing right there on Sinner's Lookout. In fact, the entire human race, all seven billion of us, are hanging out there on Sinner's Point, Sinner's Lookout. Over there, way, way, way over on the other side of Rebellion Canyon, there is God. And He is holy. He is majestic. And that other side of the canyon, that represents relationship with God. That represents heaven for us. We'll call it God's place. So between sinners look out And God's place is this enormous chasm, Rebellion Canyon. It is a chasm that separates us from God the moment that we say just one time, God, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. In that moment, this chasm opens up between us and holy God. Now, for the sake of our illustration, Rebellion Canyon is uncrossable. It's a bottomless canyon. We know that sin has separated us from God, but we want to be with Him. We know in our heart of hearts that to not be with Him for eternity would be horrific beyond imagining. And so we say, how can a sinner get himself to God, herself to God? How does that, how can that happen? People have been asking that question for thousands of years. They say, I know I will build a bridge to God. I will build a, a bridge that will, will, will span this gap between God and me, and I'll do that by doing good things. I think I can bridge Rebellion Canyon if I just do enough good things. And the history of the human race is the story of trying to do that. Maybe if I give enough money to worthy causes. Maybe if I I go to church regularly. Maybe if I learn enough religious information. Maybe if I'm involved in, in enough charitable activities, I can bridge this bottomless chasm created by my sin. In the 16th century, in Europe, the Latin church had sunk so low as to say, you can buy your way across Rebellion Canyon. Just pay the church enough money. But here's the truth, and you already know the truth, church. Here's the truth. No sinner has ever, ever done that. Bridged Rebellion Canyon. The Bible says we're all sinners. No sinner has ever bridged this gap, this chasm. Not in the history of the human race. Rebellion Canyon is not crossable on a bridge of good works. The world's greatest good deed doer, whoever that might be, cannot by their own effort ever cross this chasm made by personal sin. It'd be like saying to the world's greatest long jumper, I stand on the south rim of the Grand Canyon and you get your best running start and you jump as far as you can. That's what it would be like to, spin, to, try, to, to try to get across Rebellion Canyon on your own. I think the world's greatest long jumper can jump 28 or 29 feet. The canyon's a lot bigger than that, right? 
If you flip your note page over, the Bible says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by what? Grace alone you have been saved through faith alone. And this not is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one, God says, gets to my place by good works. We get that. So we ask the question, is Rebellion Canyon even crossable then? Is it possible to cross? We would say, yes. We would say, absolutely yes. And that's the glorious good news of the true gospel, isn't it? We ask, how does it happen? How does this chasm get crossed? Well, God asks His sinless Son, Jesus, to enter our world, live a perfect life, and then become the only acceptable sacrifice to God for our sin on the cross. God nailed first one hand and then the other hand to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus reaches from sinner's lookout to God's place. Right? He bridges the impassable chasm created by our sin. He dies the death we should die for our sin. He pays sin's penalty for us. He satisfies the justice of God because God cannot simply overlook our sin and dismiss it as if it never happened. No, His character will not allow Him to do that. So Jesus pays our penalty for us so that we don't have to and If we, relying on God's grace alone, put our faith alone in Jesus alone, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we cross over. In fact, it gets even better than that. John chapter 5, verse 21, or verse 24. How does it read there near the top of your note page? It reads like this. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from sinner's lookout to God's place, from death to life. And we say, Amen and Amen. This is of first importance, Paul says. It's at the heart of the true gospel. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and he was buried. He really did die. His physical life, it it ended on that Friday afternoon on the cross, a cruel cross because we sinned. It was God's plan from the very beginning that would work just like this. But then Paul says, equally important is a second non-negotiable truth. We'll need to know this for the final. What's the second truth, church family? Let's read it aloud together. Can we do that right off the screen? Jesus rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. Do you believe it? That's truth number two on the final. That fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, that changes everything for us, doesn't it? 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That information changes everything. I came across a story that us mountain folk, I think, would be able to relate to. There was this guy who was driving his roadster convertible on mountain roads, like, much like our windy mountain roads here around Idlewild. And he had the top down on his little convertible. It was just a gorgeous day, and he was enjoying the moment. He had the radio turned up, thoroughly enjoying the scenery uh, and making his way across on, this, on, on, the, on the mountain road. In fact, so focused and engrossed was he in the music and the scenery that he failed to notice that a driver had come up behind him and was growing more and more and more impatient with him for driving so slow and being so clueless on the mountain road. Now, I am really glad that none of us ever get like that as we drive up the mountain or down the mountain, right? Well, finally, when there was, there was room to pass, this furious driver went around this guy. He blasts past him. He honks his horn. He shakes his fist. And then he gives some not-so-well-chosen words as well. But rather than keep on going down the road, he actually forces this little roadster off when there was a, a turnout, forces him off to the side, makes him get off the road. And he jumps out of his car, and he is going to beat this guy to a pulp. The man is apologizing profusely as he sits in his little car, but it has no effect on this hostile driver Apologies are not enough, he says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you to pulp. You know, he's just so angry. And as he closes the gap between himself and, and this guy sitting in the car, the guy in the car looks down on the passenger seat of his car and he sees his little boy's black water pistol sitting on the, on the seat. He gra- without thinking, almost imp- he just grabs it and he points it right at this guy who is coming at him. And in that moment, This guy stops dead in his tracks, throws up his hands and says, I accept your apology. I accept your apology. Don't shoot me. He turns around, gets back in his car and drives down the road. Now, I am not advocating that as a strategy that you should employ at any time. But here's the point of this silly story. The introduction of just one new and significant but unexpected element into an existing situation can radically change a person's perspective. And that happened three days after the death of Jesus on a cross. That happened. The religious leaders, the Roman authorities of Jesus' day figured that the crucifixion had finished him off. With Jesus dead, his followers would soon scatter, and this whole Jesus as the Son of God and Savior thing would be over very quickly. But on that Sunday morning, three days after the crucifixion, God introduced just one new, incredibly significant, completely unexpected element into the existing situation, and it radically changed everything, didn't it? Jesus wasn't dead. He was alive. The words of verse 4, He was raised on the third day, 
changes everything. Where everybody thought that a, they'd find a, a stone-blocked grave, there was an open tomb. Where everybody expected to find a body, there was discarded burial wrappings. Where everybody was, was just going to go see death, there was life. And that changed everything. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And he didn't rocket straight away to heaven, did he? Paul makes that clear in this passage. This isn't going to be some kind of a secret thing that happens. Jesus went to Peter and said, Peter, I'm alive. He appeared to his disciples and said, men, I am alive. He saw hundreds of his followers at one time and showed them that he was very much alive. He appeared to the apostle Paul in Damascus Road and proved, I am alive. And this one newly introduced unexpected element of truth changed everything. Immediately after the crucifixion, Jesus' followers were shattered. They were disillusioned. They were brokenhearted. They went into hiding, scared, terrified, rocked to the core of their being, thinking that they had given themselves to a lie and that Jesus was dead. But the resurrection changed everything for them. It changed them. From that moment on, when they knew Jesus was alive, they were changed from fear-filled fugitives to to, to bold, hold-nothing-back proclaimers of an empty tomb and a risen Savior. They're going to face all forms of opposition, even dying for the truth of the resurrection. They've seen life where there was death. And that changed everything. Now, returning to our illustration of Sinner's Lookout in God's Place in Rebellion Canyon, the only way this chasm is crossed is if Jesus rises from the dead. True, church? This is, this is the only way this works. And we all know this is true. If Jesus does not rise from the dead, then he's no different than you and I, and sin and death and the grave win. No dead man ever built a bridge that I know of, right? (laughs) Dead men don't do anything. And if Jesus does not rise, then sin and death in the grave are more powerful than God, and we have no, no hope of ever, ever being with him. But Jesus is alive. Victorious conqueror of sin, death, and the grave, and he has bridged the impassable canyon. No matter what else we might think about Christianity this morning, it all comes down to these two truths. Jesus died for our sins and was buried, and on the third day he arose. When you stand before God, when I stand before God, and we're going to all do this one day, these two truths will matter, and they will matter in an eternal way. These are going to be on the final. Know them, believe them, the Holy Spirit says. Where you spend eternity depends on what you do with these two truths. They are of first importance. And it is because Jesus knew all of this that he says so boldly and with such confidence on the night before the crucifixion, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, and the truth, and the life, and no one,
comes to the Father except through me. Church family, is this not solus Christus from the lips of Jesus himself? I'm not just a way shower. I am the way. Nobody, nobody gets to God who does not come by way of me. And I'm, I'm, I am not just a truth. I am the truth. I can't lie. I'm God. I don't, I don't lie. I don't just know the truth. I am the truth. And if I tell you that I alone am the bridge to God, you can believe that because I don't lie. And I am the life. And what Jesus means by that is that he is eternal life. Eternal life. Freed from sin's penalty, life forever. Faith in Jesus and his finished work upon the cross and his resurrection results in forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Do you believe it? Five hundred years ago, church family, religion got in the way of the way. That's what happened. Religion and man-made rules and deliberate false teaching and human mechanisms for dealing with sin got in the way of the way. The Reformation and the men and women who led it cried, Sola, alone, on the authority of Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, who died for my sin and was buried and rose the third day, do I have life. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. We praise you. We praise you. We thank you and give glory to you. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the gift of your Son who bridges the gap, the chasm, the canyon between sinners lookout in your place. The cross is the bridge. The resurrection is the proof that the bridge will hold us up all the way from where we are to where you are. We cross that bridge by your grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. This morning, if you came to the Bible church and you are unsure about who Jesus is going to be in your life, can I just challenge you to look really hard at the scriptures that are on that little note page? Is there something that's in the way of Jesus right now being your way to life with God? Is there some some hang-up that you have with, with regards to Jesus that is keeping you from going to him? If you're struggling, chase me down. Chase Brandon. Chase a friend down. Let's, let's talk about that. There's something in the way of Jesus who is the way. And Christian, as we're about to step into this, the table and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, It's possible to know Jesus as Savior and still have stuff that gets in the way. Some kind of a persistent sin, a a habit, something that's, that's in the way of a rich relationship with Jesus. Is there something in the way? 
that you need to confess in this moment and allow the blood of Jesus to cover and, and turn from that thing. This would be the time to do that. If there's anything in the way of the way, it's time to, it's time to deal with that. And church family, we're now going to enjoy the table. It belongs to all who love you, Lord Jesus. We worship you through the taking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. All glory be to you, Solas Christus. And God's people said, Amen and Amen. Let's stand together.